I'm off and I'm on, and, but I am in the habit of tapping the mic, so don't worry about that. Uh, in the bigger scheme of things, in light of eternity, a bad mic is a minor inconvenience. Okay? Uh, if you're visiting with us, we welcome you to the uh, President's class. We are studying Luke chapter 22, so take your Bible and open up to Luke. I think I've got the mic figured out. When it goes out, I just need to stop for a second, give it time to come back on and start speaking. Okay. Last week, last week, we saw Jesus eating his last meal with his disciples. Judas departed in order to betray Jesus. And then Jesus said, things are about to shift. There's going to be a change in the way people treat you. You are going to enter into a whole series of sifting and a series of trials. And Luke 22, verse 39, is a transition verse. Here's what it says. And coming out, it means coming out of Jerusalem, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. He's going from point A, Jerusalem, to point B, the Mount of Olives. And the next 38 verses or so, or up through verse 53, the scene takes place on the Mount of Olives. And we're going to divide this section this way. Part 1 will be verses 40 through 46. And this is Jesus with his apostles in the garden. Jesus with his apostles, 40 to 46. 47 to 53, Jesus and the posse. Those who come to arrest him also, also in the garden of Gethsemane. So let's look at verse 40, shall we? And when he came to the place, meaning the Mount of Olives, or the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to them, pray. He's talking to his apostles. He tells them, pray. To what end? For what purpose? That you may not enter into temptation, or the sifting process that we talked about last week, trials, uh, testing. Now notice what they're to pray for. They're to pray that God will deliver them out of this trial, out of these trials, out of the evils. Come straight out of the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. This is God's solution when you face a trial or when you face testing. What are you to do? Instructions? Pray. We're to pray. That's God's way of handling testing. Then verse 41. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. Jesus practices what he's preaching. Here in the garden, he too is going to face a trial or a temptation, a testing. So Jesus... Praise. Notice in uh, notice the location of this prayer. It's very interesting. It says about a stone's throw. 
That means he wasn't too far from the disciples. He was within sight, a stone's throw. How far is that? Well, in Texan, we would say, just over yonder. That's how, that's about where he prayed, just over yonder. They can see him, as far as you can throw a stone. Look at the posture of his prayer. He knelt down and he prayed. Now that's significant. This means something. In Luke's gospel, people are praying standing up. And there was a Pharisee and he stood up and he said, I'm glad I'm not like this other man. But the fact that Jesus kneels down is an indication that he's weighted down. He's burdened over a situation, the test that he's about to face. And so that's the posture. Now we look at the content of the prayer. Verse 42. Look what he said. Saying, and I'm going to just skip just a little bit in this verse, saying, Father, and then I'm going to skip to the next major verb. Father, take this cup away from me. What's the cup that he's referring to? What cup is what cup does he want God to take away from him? Well, if you look back in verse 20, that cup was introduced. So look back there. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper and he said, "This cup is the cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you." This cup represents Christ's blood which is shed. It speaks of a violent death. So when Jesus prays, take this cup from me, he's asking that God will spare him from a violent death. Is there any other way that God can bring about his plan of redemption apart from Christ dying? He said, if there is, take this cup from me. Now, when you go back to verse 42, you notice that he addresses God as a father, which means that he has this relationship with God in a special way, and he addresses God as a kid or a child would its father. So he knows that, there's, that God will do what's best for him. And here's what I want, Dad, for Christmas. Okay? And so he says, take this cup. But then he modifies that. Look what he says. Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will. What's his will? Escape the cup. Nevertheless, it's not my will, but yours be done. So above all, he prays for God's will. He surrenders to God's will. Uh, sometimes, believe it or not, it's God's will for us to die. The religious rulers tried to kill Jesus on numerous occasions. They were unsuccessful. Then it was not God's will for him to die. Sometimes God heals you when you pray, and it's not God's will for you to die. But there's going to come a day when we're going to pray, and guess what? He's not going to answer that prayer. So our prayer must always be tempered with these words. Not my will, but thy will be done. Now, it's also Satan's will that Christ died. It says Judas, that Satan entered Judas, and Judas went out to portray Jesus unto death. So, 
Here is a time when God's will and Satan's will coincide. It's God's will for Jesus to die, and it's Satan's will for Jesus to die, but for different reasons. Satan wants to get rid of Jesus, get him out of the way, so he can't fulfill God's plan, and God wants him to die in order that he will fulfill his plan. Now, that's all in God's mind and in Satan's mind. We don't understand things like that. We don't understand how all that happens. We can't read God's mind all the time. We don't know what Satan wants for us. But there are times that they coordinate. We saw that with Job, didn't we? Satan said, well, let me take care of Job. God said, go ahead. They both agreed on that. But each for a different purpose. Satan means it for evil. God means it for good. God has a plan in things like this. So, Jesus wants an alternative way for God's goal to be reached, uh, but he surrenders his will to the Father. Now, look at verse 43. It's very interesting. God doesn't grant Jesus' prayer request. Look what he does instead. Very interesting. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Instead of delivering Jesus, he sends an angel. Now I want you to notice something about this encounter. In verse 43, the first thing that you notice, it says the angel appeared. Jesus could see the angel. Now I think this was angel was sent by God to encourage Jesus. It encourages Jesus to know that God heard his prayer. Uh, God had another plan, and he sends an angel which Jesus can see. And then I want you to notice the second thing is that the angel strengthened Jesus. It's very important. Because when I see those words, the angel strengthened Jesus, it immediately would take, takes me and it would take all of Luke's readers who understood the Old Testament back to the book of Daniel. And I want you to look back at Daniel, if you will, at Daniel chapter 10. Now keep your finger here because we're going to come back. But in Daniel 10, Daniel prays. And you know, Daniel would pray three times a day toward Jerusalem. And in chapter 10, Daniel is under a tremendous weight. He's under a tremendous burden, and he's been praying to God. Daniel chapter 10. And what God does is God sends an angel to Daniel. And the angel speaks to him. And for example, look at verse 12. He then said to me, do not fear Daniel. Do not fear Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God... Your words were heard. God heard your prayer. And I've come because of your words. Now that gives us some insight into what's happened with Jesus. Jesus has prayed. He says, deliver me, Father. I think he was praying for a long time in the garden. And God sends an angel to let Jesus know that his words have been heard. Now look down at verse 17. Uh, Daniel says, now how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, look what David, Daniel says. As for me, no strength remains in me now. I'm like a dish rag. 
nor is there any breath left in me. I've said all I can say. See? And then look at verse 19. So the angel said, O man, greatly beloved. Is Jesus called the beloved? Fear not. Peace be with you, even in the midst of the storm. Look what he says. Be strong. Yes, be strong. And so when he spoke to me, I was what? Strengthened. And I said, let my Lord speak for you. For you have strengthened me. So God sends an angel down to Daniel to strengthen Daniel in the midst of his prayers, in the midst of his weakness, in the midst of the burden. Now look at chapter 11 right there in verse 1. Look what else the angel says. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, that was the king, I, even I, stood up, the angel says, to confirm and what? Strengthen him. I strengthened the king. There was a problem in the country, and I came down. God sent me down to strengthen the king. Now, in the first case, listen, Daniel saw the angel. Would you agree with that? He spoke to the angel. The angel strengthened him. In the second case, the angel came to the king. I don't think the king saw the angel. But guess what? The angel strengthened the king just as well. And sometimes God allows us to see angels. And in the case of Jesus, Jesus sees the angel and he strengthens him. But in the most cases, we never see the angels. But let me tell you, when you're praying, there's always a possibility. And especially when you're weighted down and you don't know where else to turn except look up. God will send an angel unaware and will strengthen you to get you through the crisis. So God does respond to Jesus' prayer, but not the way uh, you would expect. He doesn't answer Jesus' prayer. He does not deliver him from the trial and the evil that he will experience, but he has been strengthened for it. Now listen, he is strengthened for that trial. Does that make sense? Okay, now look down at verse 44. Verse 44, look what happens next. And being in agony, notice, the burden hasn't left. The trial hasn't passed by. He still faces death. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Now notice that the strength that was given to Jesus was strength to pray more earnestly. The angel strengthened him for what purpose? So that he could keep praying more earnestly. Because he was wiped out. He was like a dish rag. And so Jesus gets more strength to keep on praying more intensely. Like an athlete who gets a second win. And I've played ball and I know what it is and I've done, I have to do a lot of running and I know what it is to get a second win. After you've run, you don't think you can go another step and then suddenly you get a second win. And then what do you do? Stop running with the second win? No, you've been strengthened to, to do what? To run some more. And then Jesus gets a second win. The angel strengthens him that he may pray more earnestly. Now we have 
this intensity described in the middle of verse 44. Look how earnestly he prayed. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Not literally drops of blood. Like drops of blood, that's a simile. It's making a comparison. There are cults that take this verse literally and develop a whole doctrine around it. The Mormons do this. They say Jesus atoned for our sins in the garden. That's when the atonement began because he sweated drops of blood. Doesn't say sweated drops of blood. This wasn't some stigmata. He sweated, and his sweat was like drops of blood. Now, what does that mean? Sweat would be like drops of blood. Well, just like an athlete, when he's, you know, performing, he starts off, and there's a little bit of sweat on his brow, isn't there? Would you say that's sweating like drops of blood? But how about if he really gets into the contest and he, he wrestles and he earnestly contests? Then his sweat just runs off of him and it drops right on the ground. That's the intensity that Jesus was praying with. That's the earnestness with which Jesus was praying. That's what Luke is trying to tell us. He is going through a very agonizing thing. And this is not something light. This is... The worst crisis you could think. This is the worst news that you could receive. And the angels strengthened him to pray even more earnestly. Now look at verse 45. And when he rose up from prayer, which seems to indicate that he prayed through, and now he knows God's will. In other words, he was able to pray to the point where he was supposed to stop to pray. Look what he did. He came to his disciples. When he rose up and had come to his disciples, he found them... Sleeping. Now, in the midst of the trial, Jesus endures the physical stress. I mean, he's ready to collapse too. The apostles do not endure the physical stress. They go to sleep. You ever under such stress that all you want to do is go to sleep? So that's what they're like, okay? Because Jesus prayed through, he now discerns the will of God. The apostles do not know the will of God at this point. They didn't pray through, which is very interesting. Jesus is ready to face the trial that comes to him. They're not ready to face the trial. But Luke doesn't blame them for this. Oftentimes we hear sermons, and the apostles slept. And Jesus said, well, couldn't you stay awake for an hour? And we take that to mean uh, that Jesus is blaming them. But Luke doesn't want to blame them. They're not to be blamed for sleeping because look what he says at the end of verse 45. He found them sleeping. Why? For sorrow or for grief. He says they had a reason to go to sleep. It was just too much for them. They just collapsed. So they had a reason. And they slept. Jesus had an angel and he kept going. And that was the difference. If Jesus wouldn't have had an angel come and strengthen him, guess what he would have been doing? He'd probably been sleeping too. And that's the difference. 
So now Jesus is being strengthened, praised through, and he's ready. Now look at verse 46. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Now we know why they slept. Luke tells us why they slept. <laughs> because of sorrow. They were grieving. They were burdened. But look what Jesus says. He doesn't say, Why are you sleeping? Don't you know what I'm about to face? He doesn't go that. Look what he does. He says, rise up and do what? Pray. Give him another chance. Okay? Same thing he told them in verse 40. Rise up and pray. Why? Lest you enter into temptation. That's nearly an exact quote from verse 40. Rise up and pray, lest you enter into temptation. So, from this we can see that their failure to pray is not final. He gives them another chance. And it's not fatal. He says you can pray and you can get through that trial. You can make it through that trial when it comes to you. Which is very interesting. Now, when you look at that prayer scene right there in verses 40 through 46, what you have is a picture of the Lord's Supper. Our Father, you see Father in there? Yes, you see Father. You see, thy will be done in there. You see that in the Lord's, uh, Lord's Prayer? Deliver us from evil. Is that in there? Lord, let this cup pass from me. Deliver me from this. This is a prayer that is patterned after the Lord's Prayer, and all of our prayers should be patterned after the Lord's Prayer. That's a model for us, in a sense. Now, when we look at this scene in Jesus praying, he's not presented here as some brave martyr. Who's ready to take on the world? He's not like a give me liberty or give me death type person. He's portrayed as a person who is suffering. A servant of God who's suffering. And he relies on God to get him through. And that is the posture that we should be seeing in the lives of our leaders. And that's how we should be doing, just like the apostles. We should be relying on God, and we should be praying and asking God for his will. So that's Jesus and the apostles. Now let's look at Jesus and the posse. Okay, verse 47. And while he was still speaking, meaning to his apostles, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to kiss Jesus. And now the test is going to begin. We're going to see who can stand up to this test. Here's the mob coming to arrest Jesus. Will the apostles pass this test? Will Jesus pass this test? Now notice Judas is mentioned and it says he led this group up to Jesus. On the surface this looks like a, uh, a normal meeting. On the Mount of Olives, every night, as was his custom during Passover week, Jesus left the city. He went to the Mount of Olives. And I imagine that on many occasions, people came out to visit him, and some of his disciples brought people out to visit Jesus. We know that Andrew brought people to visit Jesus on many occasions. So it looks, on the surface, it looks like a normal event. Judas kisses Jesus. That was normal. That's the way a disciple greeted his rabbi. You come up 
And you just say, Rabbi! And he would say, Student! And they would, the student would give the rabbi a kiss. That was normal. This is nothing out of the ordinary. See, that's the thing that you need to realize. But in reality, this is a deceptive kiss. Because we know from other Gospels that Judas tells the crowd, the one that I kiss when I get to the garden, that's the one you're to arrest. Remember that from the other Gospels? Because the disciple always kissed the master. So if you want to know who the master is, watch the one I kissed. It'll be normal. He won't think anything of it. That's the way I always greet him. But that's the one. I'll finger him through that method. Just like if I hired a detective. And I wanted the detective to follow my wife. And he said, well, who is she? And I said, well, come to the president's class on Sunday. And the one I kissed, that's her. Well, in the president's class, he'd think I was a polygamist, wouldn't he? So, uh, supposedly, if I, you know, fingered my wife that way, she wouldn't suspect anything because I just said, well, how are you doing, honey? Gave her a kiss. But in reality, she'd be fingered, you see. So that's what Judas is trying to do. Uh, but Jesus isn't fooled. <laughs> he's on to the he's on to the plan. He's he knows what's going on. And look at verse forty-eight. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those around him saw what was going on, in other words, they caught on what was going to happen. They said to him, to Jesus, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now, a couple things. Number one, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, which is another picture out of Daniel. Daniel talks about a Son of Man who ascends into heaven and receives a kingdom, which will take over all the other kingdoms of the world. Jesus is the king. That's how he identifies himself to Judas. But the second thing I want you to notice in verse 49 is the difference in response. The difference between the way Jesus responds and the way the apostles respond. Jesus responds with a question. See, Jesus is prayed through. Jesus is prepared for what's going to happen. He's not caught off guard. Judas comes and gives him a kiss. Jesus knows exactly what's happening. He's prepared because he's prayed and he knows God's will. The apostles, they were sleeping. They're not prepared. They're caught off guard. And guess what they want to do? Resist. See, they want to resist. And they want to pull out a sword, it says in verse 49. They want to use force. They want to use force to rescue Jesus. What's God's will for Jesus? To die, isn't it? Jesus knows God's will. He's prayed through. The apostles were asleep. They don't know God's will, so they each respond differently. One prepared, the others caught off guard. Now look at verse 50. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. 
Now, the servant of the high priest would have probably been a slave. Not slaves the way we think of slaves. They were very highly educated, trained, responsible people. And uh, they worked on behalf of uh, their employees. In this case, it was the high priest. And this servant would have been the man who was leading the posse. He would have been the high priest representative to arrest Jesus. And so one of Jesus' apostles, because they're not prepared and they don't know what God's will is, pulls a sword. We know who it was. Luke doesn't tell us. He doesn't want to embarrass Peter, I guess. And he cuts off the servant's right ear. Now, if the servant was right in front of Peter, and Josh, stand up for a second. Here's Josh, and he's the servant. He wants to come and arrest me, and he's standing in front of Peter, and this would be his right ear over here, then if I'm Peter, I have to be left-handed. That's one thing. If the servant's over here, then Peter's right-handed. So we don't know where Peter's left-handed or right-handed. That's not part of the lesson, but I had an extra few minutes I needed to <laughs> But notice that. Uh, that's how the apostles respond. Now look at verse 51. But Jesus. Do you see that? There's the contrast. But Jesus. That's not how he responds. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. Or allow even this. Uh, one translation says, No more of this. We don't know what it means. We don't know if he's saying, hey, stop this. We're not going to deal with this through resistance. Or he could mean, um, allow this, which means allow the arrest, Peter. Just allow the arrest. Allow this to go on. Allow it to, to carry its course. Don't resist. See, so I think that's probably what it means. Don't, uh, don't resist. Just allow the arrest. Uh, it's not God's will to meet violence with violence. And so again, we see that difference. The disciples are agitated over the situation. They don't comprehend God's will. Jesus does, and Jesus is calm. Notice that. Jesus handles this matter calmly, and he touched the servant's ear, and he healed him. Now we know that the servant's ear was severed from his body, and Jesus doesn't say he picked up the ear. It says he healed. We don't know how he did that. What do you think the reaction was right there? We have this group coming out to arrest Jesus. And uh, Peter cuts the guy's ear off. And Jesus says, let this take its course. And then he heals the man. What kind of response would you get from the apostles? From Peter, who's just cut his ear off. <coughs> Rash Peter cuts the man's ear off, and Jesus heals the man's ear. What's Peter think? Uh, what does the man who's just had his ear think? What does Judas think? You could spend an hour just mulling this over in your mind, and you could really come to some interesting conclusions, because... All the emotions that are going through these people's minds and the thoughts that must be racing through their minds would be very interesting. Now look at verse 52. 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, that would be the 
temple representatives, and the captains of the temple, that's the temple police, and the elders, that's the president's council, the president's council, who had come. He said, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? And so that tells us what they were carrying. They were carrying swords and clubs. He says, is that how you view me? Well, I wonder if that's how they view him now, since he just healed this man's ear. You think that you have to treat me like a bandit or a thug, and you're going to have to put, my, put the cuffs on me behind my back and parade me out of here? Is that how you're going to treat me? So he asked him that, that probing question. I imagine, when he, I imagine when he said that, he may have looked in their eyes. Is that how you're going to treat me? Look at, to the surface. Is that how you're going to treat me? Judas has been caught with this hypocritical kiss. Is that how you're going to treat me? I bet you they all dropped their eyes. Because there was nothing that they could do. Uh, we know from John's Gospel that one time he just said, I am, and they all fell backwards. Just from his words, we know how powerful he was. Uh, but anyway, Jesus is showing that when they came out with clubs and swords to treat him like a robber or a crook, his response was just the opposite. He loved his enemies. Jesus said, you're to love your enemies, you're to bless those who persecute you, and even from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, they're ignorant. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't know why they're doing it, they don't know what they're doing. So, Jesus' response is very calm, but the apostles' response is meet force with force. And Jesus said, none of that. Now look at verse 53. Verse 53. He says to those same people, when I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me then. But this is your hour and the hour and the power of darkness. Now he's making a contrast between what they didn't do in daylight and what they're willing to do under the cloak of darkness. He said, when I was with you in the light of day, you tried absolutely nothing. But now you come out at night with clubs and swords to arrest me. You make your move. When I was there in public with the crowds around, you didn't do a thing. You were afraid. So now you come under the cloak of darkness when I only have 12 men and you got 600 men and you're going to try to arrest me. What you wouldn't do in public, you will do in private. And so he says uh, there's a difference there. It shows that they're cowards. They're doing this. They have the masses. There's no one around to protect Jesus. And he lets them know that he understands that. When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. Now, very interesting. The temple was supposed to be a place of prayer, but they weren't doing the praying, were they? Uh, the real place of prayer is the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where they arrest Jesus. Now, look at this next statement. But, not, you wouldn't do that today, but this is your hour. Whose hour? This is your hour. Whose hour? The Jewish leaders who want to arrest him. Uh, this is Satan's hour. This is the hour of evil. But it won't last. It's just an hour. Amen. 
Remember when Jesus died? He says, my hour has come. But guess what? It was just an hour. It passed. He says, this is your hour. This is evil's hour. This is Judas's hour to betray him. So there's a but there. There's a contrast between what they wouldn't do during the day when they didn't have an opportunity, but this is their opportunity. This is their hour. And this is the power of darkness. Look at that. This is the power of darkness. The word power there means uh, this is the rule of darkness. This is the realm of darkness. This is the domain of darkness. This is motivated by the kingdom of darkness. That's what he's saying. He is saying this is evil. When he uses the word darkness there, it's not only night, but he's using the word darkness metaphorically to represent evil. This is evil's hour. This is motivated and comes from the realm or the domain of evil and darkness. That same phrase, power of darkness or domain of darkness, is used in Colossians 1.13, where Paul says Christ has, or God has delivered us from the power of darkness. Same phrase. Christ has delivered us, God has delivered us from the power of darkness, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. There are two realms. A realm of darkness, this present evil world, and there is the kingdom of God. And this present evil world and the realm of darkness is what's motivating this right here. And Jesus is putting his finger on it. So he lets them know who, whom they serve. He says, you might think that you're doing this to uh, escape... Maybe Rome's ire. You might think that you're doing it for self-purposes, but in reality you're doing this because you're motivated by evil. He lets them know that he understands that. What they are doing is evil. He is holding them responsible. You're doing something evil and you know it. Now the pastor talked about conscience. When they went out and he said, you, you trying to arrest me like a thug? With clubs and swords? And he just showed them that he was a healer. He says, what you're doing is evil. Do you think their conscience bothered them a little bit? Did they know they were doing something evil? Or they think, oh, we're doing something really nice. Do you think Judah said, oh, we're really doing something nice. We're really trying to serve God. We're all temple people. No, their conscience bothered them, and he wanted to let them know that he knew what they were doing was evil, that they were not, even though they were doing it under the cloak of darkness, <laughs> their deeds were coming out in the light. Now, there's one thing here that becomes obvious in verses 47 through 53. And that's who's in control. Amen. Jesus is in control. Amen. Uh, Peter said, I'll take control of this matter. <laughs> Peter wasn't in control. Judas said, I'll lead you to him. We'll be able to arrest him. No, he wasn't in control. Uh, we have so many people will arrest him. They weren't in control. Jesus can heal and he can cause you to fall back just like that. Jesus is in control. Satan isn't in control. Jesus is in control. And God is in control. This is a test. 
This is a test for the apostles. They failed. Peter cuts the guy's ear off. He takes the old, you know, an eye for an eye approach. Because he wasn't ready to face the test. Because he slept instead of praying. Jesus is facing the test. He passed the test. He submitted to the will of God. He handles this very calmly. Because he prayed and he was strengthened. But also, the nation of Israel and its leaders are in the midst of a test. And they're being exposed for what they are. They still had an opportunity, even at this moment, to back off and say, no, we're not arresting you. We want to give you a fair hearing. But they didn't do it. They didn't pass the test. One of the great themes of Scripture, starting from Job, starting from the garden into Noah's day, to Job, to the garden, to our day, is that many times we're put in tests. Some of you have been put in tests this week. And how are you going to face those tests? And how are you going to handle those tests? And how are you going to be prepared for those tests? And the Scripture says that in the midst of these situations, we need to turn to God and we need to pray. And we need to pray through until we get the answer. And when we do, we'll be ready for the test. So we'll pick up at verse 54 next week. Having arrested him. Hey, it shouldn't be say having arrested him. It should. Now it says having arrested him, and it should say that. But, it, but we can read between the lines. It means, and having allowed himself to be arrested, they led him and brought him to the high priest's house. And Peter followed at a distance. That's where we'll pick up next week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we've not allowed this sound system to uh, interrupt our lesson and to cause us to miss the points. Uh, Lord, even in this situation, it's a test. Those who are running the sound boards, it's a test. Those in the church and the media department, it's a test. It's a test for me standing up here. It's a test for everybody in this room. How are we going to respond? Are we going to respond with anger? Are we going to resist? Try to solve this problem by force? Or will we turn to you, Lord? Oh, help us. Help us trust you. Help, Lord, we trust that you will work this situation out and we'll come out on the other side. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.